Let me pray, too, before we start here, just looking in the Scripture. Um, Father, we know your word is truth, and your word and your spirit have a way of searching us to our innermost being, our inner thoughts. Lord, none of us is really adequate to both fully plumb the depths of the reality and the truth of your word or fully apply it, and we are dependent on you, your spirit, Lord, this morning to make real to each one of us the things you want us to get from your word, and we submit ourselves to you, lay ourselves at your feet now, and ask you to honor yourself by revealing more of your truth, more of yourself to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. When my daughters were younger, uh, quite a bit younger, and we looked through the Bible together, uh, Proverbs, I'm thinking of First Peter also, one of the things we told them routinely was this, if you're looking at a guy and you're thinking of him as a potential for your future, if he's not kind, write him off. If he's not kind, he's toast, he's history, write him off. And I say so on the credibility of God's Word. Proverbs 19.22a says this, What is desirable in a man is his kindness. What is desirable in a man is his kindness. And ladies, this still applies. If you're thinking about a guy for the future, if he's not kind, write him off. In all seriousness, no joking, write him off. If he's not kind, write him off. This proverb, Proverbs 19.22, was written by King Solomon. And think of the context of his life and the time period in which this was written. You know, uh, kindness was valued back then. Uh, you think of Solomon's dad, King David. King David was a guy who in his lifetime struck down his enemy with the sword with no mercy whatsoever on one hand. Great severity, no mercy, no kindness on one hand. Then on the flip side, King David is a guy who searches out for a descendant of King Saul that he can show kindness to. In a day in which both severity and kindness sort of were taken to their nth degree, you have David's son Solomon say what's desirable is kindness. And you see no place more fully than in God himself in both his character and his acts. Both of these elements of severity, I've never sounded so loud in my life, severity, Kevin, you tell me to move or anything else you need me to do, okay? Severity or kindness. You see them both in spades, in God himself, in his character, and in his acts. Paul alludes to this in Romans eleven twenty two, 22, and I'll come back to this here at the end when we're speaking this morning, but Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. And in Romans, the context is, Paul's sort of looking out over God's sovereign acts in the nation of Israel and among the nations. And as he does so, he, sees you, he says, you see both the severity of God displayed and you see the kindness of God displayed. And you see both of those elements this morning in Genesis 21, verses 9 through 21, where we'll hang our hats this morning. If you have your Bible, open that. If you've got a study sheet, you've got the text in front of you. But the kindness and severity of God are both seen in Genesis 21 this morning. And if you remember, we're catching up in Abraham's story again. He and Sarah have finally had Isaac. 
their promised son they'd wait decades for, the son of promise, the one who's brought laughter, is finally in their midst. And that's where we pick up this morning. So verse 9, Genesis 21. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of the maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham arose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water, gave to Hagar, putting on her shoulder and the boy, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes, and she went and sat opposite him, about a bowshot away. For she said, Don't let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. They've moved down south from where Abraham is, sort of in the Sinai Peninsula area. We'll look at three points this morning and have a separate closing as well. And the first point we'll spend the least amount of time on. Guys, this is a trick question too. When do you listen to the advice of your wife? When do you reject the advice of your wife? Trick question, be careful. Uh, That's one of the elements that comes into play here for Abraham this morning. When do you listen and when do you not? If you remember, back in Genesis 16 2. Abraham listened to the advice of his wife, Sarah. She'd come up with a brilliant idea that since she wasn't having any children, she would give Abraham, her maid, her bond servant, her bond woman, Hagar, and through Hagar, God would give them the promised child. And in that context, Abraham listened to the advice of his wife. And he shouldn't have. Now in the story today, as the story advances, Abraham shrinks from the idea his wife is proposing. That woman, that Hagar and her son Ishmael, your son, I want you to kick them out. And Abraham's cringing. He doesn't want to follow her advice now, but he should. Did did follow it when he shouldn't have, now doesn't want to when he should. When Sarah was wrong, he listened. And when she's right, he doesn't want to listen. Sarah's instincts happen to be right in this case. You know, before, I'm not having a baby. Maybe God will work this way. Maybe God will use this, what we can do, what we can figure out. And she was wrong. Here, though, her instincts are to protect Isaac. And her instincts are in line with God's will because Isaac is the son they waited for. 
Isaac is the son that God promised them that God said would be his link in the chain to bring about, if you remember, the blessing of the world, the blessing of the nations through Abraham's descent and ultimately the Lord Jesus. But Isaac was the next link in that promised chain, not Ishmael. So here, Sarah's instincts line up with God's will. And Abraham doesn't see that. He doesn't get it. He, didn't, he was wrong on the first time, and he's wrong again here. And just a brief point. If you're giving advice to someone else, or you're taking advice from someone, the real question is, does the advice line up with God's will as he has expressed it? Does the advice line up with God's will as he's expressed it? There's a minor caveat which I'll mention, but generally speaking, if someone gives you advice and it's consistent with what God has spoken in his word, even if you're not emotionally engaged in that, it's probably prudent for you to take that advice, even if you wouldn't otherwise. If someone's giving you advice that does not conform to what God's read, given us in the scripture, even if you want to do the thing that you know the scripture provides against, Don't do it. Sometimes you might be given advice to do something that's consistent with the Scriptures and might otherwise seem a wise thing or an appropriate thing to do, and you may simply know that's not what God wants me to do. So I want to be careful on this. Sometimes you simply know God doesn't want me to do something that other people might be free to, or God's constraining me to do something other people can't. And if that's the case, that direction, that advice is not going to be inconsistent with his word. Okay, we're never making choices against what God has said clearly in the scriptures for sure. But someone could give you advice on a certain occasion in which you just say, it's biblically consistent and it looks like otherwise it might be a good idea, but I just don't think that's what God has for me. My gut doesn't allow me to get there. My discernment tells me that's probably what I, not what I should do. Generally speaking, if it's consistent with God's word, the exception aside, that's probably what we should be doing. And so when we're receiving advice, we've got to ask ourselves the question, is the advice I'm being given, is the advice I might act on, is it consistent with what I know to be true from God's word, with what he's already told me? If it's inconsistent, be careful of that advice. Lots of people are well-intentioned. Sometimes we're, we're well-intentioned. We give bad advice. And other times people who like us and want to bless us will give us advice that's not good. Good intentions aside, as far as we know, is it consistent with what God has already revealed about His will to us? If it is, that's probably the safe place to proceed. The place we're going to hang our hat on this morning, though, points two and three, have to do both with the severity of God and with the kindness of God, God's severity in this story, this part of the story, and God's kindness as well. You see God's severity in verses 10, and then again in verses 14 through 16. Now, going back to Genesis 16, when Hagar, the maid, got pregnant, and Sarah, her mistress, was not. This is what Sarah and Abraham wanted. She got pregnant, she's going to have a child. This is what they're after. But if you remember back then, Hagar shows this disrespect, this disdain for Sarah. And in God's economy, Sarah is still the woman through whom God is going to bring the son of promise. And the messianic line is going to proceed from Sarah, not from Hagar. And so there's Hagar 
showing disdain and disrespect for the woman through whom God means still to bring the son of promise. Now in our story today, here's Ishmael, Hagar's son. He's not the son of promise. And the same attitude his mom has for Sarah, he has for Isaac. He shows disdain and disrespect for the son of promise. For the son God had promised and said, this is the one through whom I'm giving my work. This is the one I promised. This is the one the blessing of the world hangs on. Not Ishmael. Ishmael showing disdain and disrespect. That term mock, if you read it, uh, you say he's mocking him. You know, I might say I'm mocking someone and I might just mean I'm giving him a hard time. I'm teasing with them. I'm joking with them a little bit. And mock, as used here, it has a variety of meanings. Um, Bruce Waltke says it has the idea of malevolence or evil desire towards Isaac here. The son of the maid is opposing, dissing, disrespecting Isaac, the son of promise. This is significant too, just in the passage itself. Did you notice, did anyone notice that Ishmael is never called by name in this passage? He's never named. So for instance, uh, he's referred to as the son of Hagar, her son, the son of this maid, his son, your descendant, the boy, him, the lad. Everything but his name. I wonder why that is. God goes out of his way not to call Ishmael by name. And I think it at least has something to do like this. That between Ishmael and Isaac, the significance of one fades so notably that his name is not even mentioned in context with the son of promise. That Ishmael's importance in this story, in God's economy, fades so notably that God does not even mention his name in the context of this contest of wills between Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is not named. Ishmael is not the one God promised. Ishmael is not the one God's working through. Because there's this kind of opposition, and Sarah sees it, and we'll see this opposition affirmed in a minute in Galatians 4, she demands that Hagar and her son be kicked out. And so God tells Abraham to follow Sarah's lead. Kick Hagar out, kick Ishmael out. Now later in Genesis 25, after Sarah's died, Abraham marries again. We talked about this, I think, last week. He fathers more children. In Genesis 25, the text tells us clearly that when these children come, Abraham sends them away. And I think he learned his lesson here. You know, he's a doting father. He loves Ishmael, and no doubt he loves these other sons that he has through his second wife, Keturah, and he wants to bless them, but he's not free to bless them in the way that God's determined to bless Isaac. And so when he has those sons later, he sends them away, away from the son of promise, so that they cannot, do not interfere with Isaac and what God wants to do through him. Now, when I read this story, I don't know if you're like me at all in this, Does this treatment sound heartless, harsh, unkind, and severe? I mean, just put this picture in your... This isn't like sending Hagar down to the hotel downtown where the quick shop is, right? So Abraham gets up in the morning. He gives her the food and the water she can carry. And he sends her out into the desert. Heartless cruel, unfair. 
we'd probably be thrown in jail today if we did something like this. And yet, this severity of treatment, this Hagar and Ishmael heading out in the desert on their own with just what they're carrying, this is actually, this is what God commanded. It's what God commanded. He said, what Sarah's saying, that's the deal. You send them out. Ishmael's not the one I promised. You send them out. It sounds really, really harsh. Don't be distressed, verse 12, because of the lad you're made. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. You know, on the front end here, in this severity, God is determined to bless through Isaac. And he is not going to suffer Ishmael and Hagar's presence to affect his desire, his will, his promise to bless not only Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, but remember, this is after the blessing of the nations and the world because God said in Genesis 12, Through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Isaac is the link in that chain. And so it's not just that Isaac is threatened, it's God's will for the world is threatened by the presence of Ishmael. And God says, they've got to go. It sounds really harsh. It sounds really severe. It sounds really cruel and thoughtless. But this is exactly what God required. Ishmael must be displaced. He must be sent out. In Galatians 4, verses 28 through 31, a couple things affirmed here. Paul's making a spiritual application from this story we're in here this morning in Genesis. And there he says, you brothers, you Christians, you folks who have faith in Christ, you're like Isaac. You're like the children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. This would be those who are merely religious. If you remember the Jews, especially if you read Acts, as Paul goes through and proclaims the gospel in Asia and in Greece, the key persecutors of the early church were the Jews in each one of those cities. Those with a religious claim and a physical claim to Abraham were the ones persecuting the sons of promise, the Isaacs, those Gentiles and Jews who were coming to faith in Christ, who Paul says, you guys are the Isaacs of your day. You're the children of promise, and you're being persecuted. And when he says persecuted here in verse 29, that's from the term mock in our text this morning. When Paul interprets, he says, it's not just mocking or kidding, it's persecution. What does the Scripture say? Quoting our passage, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. So in the New Testament, a couple thousand years later, God affirms what was going on in our story. He's not saying He was too harsh or too severe. He said He was pursuing His agenda to bless, ultimately, to bless turned out in the desert, the food and water they could carry on their backs, the severity of God, kind and severe. This is the severity of God. If you look at verses 13 and then 17 through 21, you see the kindness of God. Severity on one hand, kindness on the other. I'll just run through a few verses in a row here, but verse 13, God says to Abraham, of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also. As Abraham is turning them out, God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to make of that son a nation also. Verse 17, God heard the lad crying. It is important to remember, 
Ishmael's name means God hears or God heard. And just like Isaac's name was tied to his identity, the one who brought joy and laughter, Ishmael's life is characterized by God hearing. And you remember it was God who gave Ishmael his name just like he gave Isaac his name. And when Hagar had fled from Sarah, when Sarah was harsh to her, God met her in the desert and said, you're going to have a son. And I'm going to make of him a great nation and you're to call him Ishmael because when Hagar cried out, God heard. And so you see here, Ishmael's name, just like Isaac, it reflects the way God interacted in his life. God heard. And it says, God heard here. Verse 18, lift up the lad, I'll make a great nation of him. God says now to Hagar. And then verse 20, God was with the lad and he grew. By the way, that's language similar that God applies later to the little prophet boy Samuel. God's with him and he grew. So once God has removed Ishmael from where he can cause trouble to Isaac, the son of promise, from where he could actually hamper what God was determined to do through Isaac to ultimately bless the world. Once he's removed him from that situation, once he's been severe, he's kind. God's kind now to Ishmael. He's just kicked him out with the water and the food on his back. Severity to turn around and show him great kindness, bring the water up, give him a wife and a future and make of him a great nation. So that God's severity in removing Ishmael from his father, I mean, think of that emotionally, from his father, all his relatives, everyone he's ever known, that severity was in order that God could not only keep his plan intact with Isaac, but it was also in order that he could show and pour out kindness on Ishmael. So Ishmael, not the son of promise, still the beneficiary of God's kindness, but only after God's severity. You see both here in the life of Ishmael, his severity, God's severity first, then God's kindness. I don't know if you're like me, but I look back on times of my life in which I say to God, sort of emotionally, Lord, you're ripping me off. You're being so hard on me. And you're being so unfair. And you're being so severe with me and so cruel and so hard. Why can't you see things my way and let me have this thing that I want or do this thing I want? And God says, no way, no how. And he's severe with me. And then I find out later, wow, I'm so thankful God was severe with me because that severity is what provided the ability for me to receive what the blessing God was and had for me all along. God's severity clears the place in my life for God's kindness and his blessing. Sometimes we see the severity of God when he judges those opposed to his will also. That's not quite where this passage is going this morning, but I want to mention this. In Romans 11, the passage I quoted here at the beginning, Romans 9, 10, and 11 talk about God's sovereignty and his dealings in the world. And in context, there, when it says God's severe, God is severe in judging those opposed to Him. He's severe in judgment. Not in redemption there. Not in kindness there. 
He's severe in judgment against those who've opposed his will. The examples there are people like Pharaoh in Egypt, Esau. But the context there is God's severity in judgment. And if you remember just a few weeks ago, we studied through Genesis 19. God's severity in judgment on the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah where God's severity and judgment was poured out as fire and brimstone from heaven, and it consumed the wicked cities, the cities God said were wicked, it consumed them in judgment, severe. I just want to make sure that this story brings about severity that leads to kindness, but Romans 11, there's another kind of severity with God. It's the severity of His judgment. He's a holy, righteous God, and when He judges severely, It's because it's appropriate, it's fitting, it's right. I don't want us to think that God's severity always leads to kindness. Sometimes it doesn't. God wants us to make sure that he knows that his severity also includes his judgment against those who are opposed to him and reject his son of promise, ultimately, the Lord Jesus. So there is another kind of severity that we're really not dwelling on this morning, but we definitely want to make sure we touch on it because that's in the scripture as well. Even in these occasions, though, even in Romans 11 and even in Genesis 19, God still brings up His kindness. Not not on the objects of judgment in either case, but in Romans 11, it's a contrast of the severity of His judgment on those who reject His salvation with the kindness He shows to those who enter into that relationship through faith. That's the contrast. Those who have entered into a relationship with faith get God's kindness. There's no severity left in that sense of judgment. But even in Genesis 19, you remember, severity and judgment on the cities, but God's determined kindness to save and to spare Lot and his daughters. Even in the context of God's severity and judgment, you still see his kindness displayed on what he calls vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. Sort of back to the context of this, I wonder for you and I, how often do we produce and then entertain or invite to hang around the Ishmaels in, in our own life? Uh, those things that we do by our effort, whether we think it's bringing about God's will or not, how often in our life do we produce Ishmaels? And then do we, in distinction to what Abraham was called to do here, do we keep them around? You know, most of the time if we have an Ishmael, and this is understandable, Ishmael, the boy in this story, Abraham's son. God says, kick him out. Abraham's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is my son and I love him. God still says, kick him out. Got to go. And you know, when we have Ishmaels in our life, we entertain them. The things we brought about by our, our doing. Not little boys, probably, but who knows what. Uh, the things that we can produce in our effort, in our flesh, our ability, those Ishmaels in our life, we entertain them, we coddle them, we protect them, we do everything except what God told Abraham to do, which is to kick them out, to be severe with those things we've brought about in our life by our doing and not God's. And you know, the truth is, you'll see... If you're a child of faith, a son of promise, as it were, like Isaac, you'll see that God's severity in requiring us to kick out those Ishmaels is so that he can fill us up with Isaacs, with joy and with laughter, with blessing and with kindness. 
And in that case, it really is true that severity is the gateway to kindness. God's severity leads to his kindness in the life of the believer and those who are in relationship with God. Kathy and I watched a movie just a couple nights ago called Extraordinary Measures. It's made just this year. Has anybody here seen this movie? It's kind of slow. Based on a true story, I'll add. Uh, Brendan Fraser plays John Crowley. And John Crowley has three children. And two of his children have Pompe's disease. And it's a degenerative disease in which the child's body can't properly handle sugars. And they build up in the muscles and they deteriorate. And the expected lifespan of these kids was typically about nine years old. This is a very recent movie, by the way. So this is still fairly current. And his children, one is at that age and one is approaching that age. And he's motivated to help his kids. And there's nothing available, no cure whatsoever. He does a lot of reading. He's a bigwig in a pharmaceutical company. He quits his job against the godly advice, helpful, appropriate advice of his peers at the company. He quits his good job and he starts up a business with a stuck-in-the-mud, egotistical, Nebraska scientist named Dr. Robert Stonehill. I had to add that, Sean, from Nebraska. This guy's brilliant, but really hard to work with. But he's the guy, as as Crowley's done all the research, this is the guy that looks like he might have a leg up on the rest of the research that might actually produce something that would help his children. And they're struggling along, they're underfunded, and lo and behold, a a mega pharmaceutical company's going to buy them, and they, they see this as a good thing. They're bought up, they move to Seattle. And now they've got all the money in the world, they've got all the resources they need to develop this enzyme serum drug that may help kids like Crowley's. And you know what? Lo and behold, they come up with an enzyme drug that they think is going to work. And Crowley's ecstatic. He's got two kids on the verge of death, and here is the drug, and it's ready for trial testing. His hopes are coming true. And all of a sudden he finds out his children are not available. His children cannot be used in this trial. They can only make so much of this. It's still on the front end of production. They're going to restrict the testing to infants only. His children will not be included. And all his hopes are dashed. His kids are near the age of expected death. And the drug is not going to be available for them to be tested. So he produces an Ishmael. He reaches out to do what he can do. And so he goes to a local hospital. And he asks them if they will hold the clinical testing on his two sibling children for this drug. And so the hospital says, sure, and they send a letter to his company saying, we'll gladly do this. And the CEO and his boss, Kent, are incensed that he went behind their back to try and get his children included. And his boss, Kent, tells him, you've jeopardized our whole program it would be unethical for any employee of this company or his children to be included in these trials. You know, the dad's arguing, hey, there's valuable scientific information. If you just took my two kids, it's a sibling study and it meets other kinds of protocols. Limited amount of enzyme product needed. And they're just mad. And they feel like he has put them in the bind and their whole development of this drug could suffer because of what he's done. And Crowley loses his temper with Kent, his boss. 
and he balls him out. He does everything but hit him. And he walks out of his office and he goes down to his office and as he's sitting there and he's cooling down, he starts to write his letter of apology because he knows he's blowing it. And as he's writing his letter of apology, Kent, his boss, and a security guard come to his door. Gosh, I wonder why he needs a security guard. And so Kent informs him that he is being terminated that day that he needs to clear his desk, he needs to be out of the building by the end of the day, he's toast, he's done. They're done with him, he's fired on the spot. Now, all his hopes are gone, he reached for his Ishmael, and it cost him his job and any hope he had. And when he was yelling at his boss, Kent, he called him cold-hearted. And before Kent leaves his office, he says, now, you know, I didn't mind you saying that I was cold and calculating, but cold-hearted was just too far. And he says, the reason that we're firing you is because once you're not an employee of the company, your children can participate in this study. And they do. And the drug works. And his children's lives are spared. And the lives of other children, they know. These parent groups with Pompeii's disease, they have kids that get up and walk because the drug works. There's this severity. He was fired and he thought it was all over. Severity for the sake of kindness. Because they wanted to bless his family and his children. But he didn't know that when he got fired. It was severity that led to kindness. I don't know how many Barry Goldwater fans there are in here. Or even in this. How many people even here know who Barry Goldwater is? In 1964, Barry Goldwater was the Republicans' presidential nominee. And at his acceptance speech, he quoted the Roman speaker, orator, Cicero. And this is what he said. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. That's a great line. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Extremism is no vice. Severity is no vice. And moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. If God pursued our redemption with moderation, we'd be toast. We'd be history. We'd be without God and without hope. God's extreme severity towards sin, our Ishmael's, is in order that He can give us our Isaacs and our redemption and our laughter and our joy. If you are not absolutely sure you've tasted God's kindness in Jesus Christ, let me just encourage you. In a group this big, got to be a few. Um, We get, we get God's severity in judgment or we get God's kindness in redemption. Ultimately, all of us do. And I would just encourage you, God is kind. I mean, He's really kind. God's kindness makes us look crooked and perverse by comparison. God is kind. But He's also absolutely just, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. And if we don't find in God's redemption provided through Christ His kindness and don't accept that, all we have left is God's severity and judgment. And think of this for just a second. God's severity and judgment poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, severity, 
that leads to kindness so that God can pour out His kindness on us in redemption. God's severity on Christ for the sake of kindness on us. So that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, guys, this is all that matters. We get either God's kindness in Christ or we're left with God's severity and judgment. There's no place in between. And the willingness of God, the necessity of God, to judge in severity is not only displayed in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's displayed ultimately on His Son on the cross. If God will pour out severity and judgment on Jesus, why in the world would we think He would not be willing to pour out His severity and judgment or could do otherwise on those who've rejected His offer of kindness in Christ? Impossible. Won't happen, can't happen. So if you don't know God's kindness in Christ, I would encourage you, exhort you, drag you any way I can to simply say, yes, Lord, I accept your kindness in Christ, your payment for my sin. If you know God's kindness in Christ, and I assume most of you do in here this morning, you know, just thank God for being severe. Thank God for being a great father who's severe with us when he needs to be so that he can pour out his kindness on us, which is what he's after at the end of the day anyway. It's not that God delights in being severe. He doesn't. He actually delights in mercy and in loving kindness. And as we've said before, he calls judgment his strange work in Isaiah. It's not what is most typical of him. Kindness is. Mercy is. The song Bill started with this morning, grace is. Those are the things he identifies himself by. He's holy, he says, over and over again in the Old Testament. The second thing he says is, he has loving kindness. Let me close with this from Romans eleven thirty two. Thinking about severity, God's severity on one hand, and God's kindness on the other. Paul says this. Paul concludes this great theology in Romans 9, 10, 11. God's sovereignty. How he's working in Israel and in the nations. And how he's not only saved Israel in the past, he's... He's saving the Gentiles now and how ultimately he'll save all of Israel, he says in Romans 11. And Paul concludes his great theology with this. He says, God has shut up all in disobedience. We're all under judgment so that he may show mercy to all. God has shut up all of us in disobedience, severity, so that he can show mercy to all. And when Paul thinks of that and he thinks about God's working in the world, Isaac and Ishmael, Jesus in the New Testament period, God's grace poured out, God's severity, God's kindness. Paul concludes with this, the depth, his mind is blown away, as ours should be, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. It's so deep, it's so high, we can't get there. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Don't question God in His severity and kindness, guys. He's God and we're not. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I love that. Paul looks at God in his actions in the world, in both his severity and judgment, and his kindness and grace and redemption, and he says, it just blows my mind. And it just makes me want to bow down and say, God, you're it. 
I want to worship you and I want to thank you for who you are and what you've done as we should this morning also. Let's pray. Father, you are ultimate reality. We cannot wiggle around you. We cannot escape you. David says, Lord, in the Psalms, if we go up or down, if we hide our words, our thoughts, Lord, you're omniscient, you know all things, you know all ends and all means. Father God, we throw ourselves at your feet this morning and worship and we thank you for the severity in judgment you poured out on your beloved son, the Lord Jesus, in order that you could show kindness to Ishmael's like us. Lord, to those who were born of human parents, what flesh and blood could provide, but not, Lord, those could reach or attain to the righteousness you require. Lord, help us to bless you for your severity as well as your kindness. And Father, truly, we thank you that you are characterized more by kindness than by severity. And Lord, with utmost abandon, we throw ourselves on the mercy, the grace, and the kindness of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.